One of the themes that the Bible makes crystal clear is that this world is not our home. We happen to be living in the greatest country on this planet, but even then, this world is not our home. Amen? If this is good as it gets, we've got problems, okay? And it's kind of, we got, prob- we got a lot of problems going on right now, but um, even at its best, um, we are reminded that we, this world is not our home. It's all throughout the Bible. Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship, it's in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or consider the Old Testament saints. They were, they were given the promise like Abraham that you were gonna inherit this land, the physical land, the promised land. But the Bible says that even though he got the physical promise of the land, he looked past that land to something better. By faith, he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So God said, hey, this land is yours. But then it says this, for he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundation, foundations whose designer and builder is God. So God says, hey, Abraham, this land is yours. But Abraham said, I see this as kind of a down payment for something better. Even Abraham was looking past what was given to him to something better. As a matter of fact, all of the Old Testament saints did that. If you go on in the book of Hebrews, it says this, these, all these righteous people, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Now, if they had been thinking about the land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. So not only Abraham, all of the Old Testament saints were looking forward to something better. They knew that this world wasn't their home. They were looking to that new heaven and that new earth. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews says this is the attitude we should all have. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Folks, when you look at the world and what's going on in it, it's easy for your heart to get heavy and to go, oh my goodness, I'm not sure where this world is headed. I talked to one of the World War II vets uh, vets after the service, Fred. He came up to me and he just said, Bill, I'm so disappointed in the state of this country. He really was. He had a tear in his eye, actually. He was crying about it. And... But he said, I needed to hear that sermon today because you reminded us that this, our citizenship is elsewhere, as great as this country has been. And as bad as it might be and the things that are going on in it, he goes, this, we're not here. We're not here long. There's something better. And I was so encouraged by that. I was really encouraged by that. But what's the significance? This world is not our home. Well, here's what it means. We are exiles. We are strangers on this planet. And that's something the Bible makes crystal clear. We just read this. Let me read it again. These all died in faith. This is Hebrews 13. These all died in faith, not having received, pardon me, 11 verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This world is not our home. We are exiles. And this is made Very clear elsewhere. Peter said it this way, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Jesus said it in very robust terms, the fact that we are not of this world. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Now, why is this significant? This world is not our home. We're exiles. We're sojourners. We're passing through. We are pilgrims passing through. What's the significance of that? Well, I don't know if you know this, but one of the defining characteristics, characteristics of those of us that are exiles is to be that of reverence. Believe it or not. Church, it is my honor to take us to the word of God today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. Hear the word of God this morning. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time as exiles. Amen. Church, again, I present to you the word of God today. Folks, we are not just to be exiles. One of the defining characteristics of, our, uh, of us being exiles is that we are to be reverent exiles. And as our passage says right here, we are to be reverent exiles because God is holy and he's called us to be holy and he's going to hold us accountable for that. Now, here's the good news. As believers, we're forgiven. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your debt has been forever canceled. You are forever a child of God, and that can never be taken away from you. Amen? Amen. Praise God for our salvation. You are forever a child of God. Nevertheless, the lives that we live are still going to be held to account by God. You see, many believers are under the mistaken impression that when I accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, I forego all judgment. But that's simply not true. Yes, as believers, we escape eternal condemnation. That's off the plate. That's off the table. You're going to heaven. I'm going to heaven by our faith in Jesus. We are saved. We escape eternal condemnation, but not divine accountability. And this should very much cause us to live as reverent exiles every day of our lives. Let me give you a few passages where it talks about the divine accountability that you and I are going to face. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this, according to the grace of God given me, given to me, like a skilled master building, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. Fire means God's judgment. It will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire as or through judgment. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we read this. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. I might have a clear conscience, but the Lord might reveal something to me that I didn't see. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And then in 2 Corinthians, one last verse. So whether we are at home 
or away. We make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I think for many Christians, the thought of getting into heaven is all that matters. I made it. I'm forgiven. I'm a child of God, right? Praise God, I made it. I got my fire insurance. I'm in the door. But far less thought is given to the reality that we as Christians and the lives that we live are going to be held to an account. The spiritual fruit that we bear for the Lord, it will be rewarded. And it will be rewarded beyond your wildest imagination. If you give even a cup of water in the name of Christ, your reward for that is going to be beyond your wild imagination. More on that in a minute. But everything else that's done in the flesh will be burned up. My old seminary professor, Dr. Henry Holloman, always used to say, God cannot accept from you what the Holy Spirit doesn't produce through you. He also said, gentlemen, when we get to heaven and I'm cleaning your mansion, you be nice to me. (laughs) And so if we get to heaven and Pastor Bill is cleaning your mansion, you be nice to me, okay? I'm just saying that right now. I'm I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to bring up this sermon. Now here's the deal. We all understand the gravity of God's judgment that either sends people to heaven or hell. We understand that. The the weight of that rests on us because people's eternity is at stake. But much harder to perceive is the eternal significance of God's judgment upon believers resulting in eternal reward or loss. But I would venture to guess it's far more significant than we give it credit. Again, many of us are like, wow, I'm in. As long as I'm in, that's all that really matters. I don't really care about the other judgment that's going to come. But Paul, Paul was concerned about it. He brought it up many times. As a matter of fact, you know who else was concerned about it? Jesus. He talked about it. As a matter of fact, he told a parable on this very subject. It's in Luke chapter 19. It's kind of a long passage. I'm going to read it to us. But church, hear the word of God. And they heard these things. That is the disciples. He proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them each ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But the citizens hated him, not necessarily his servants, but the the other citizens. And of course, that represents the, the Jewish leadership. But the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. That's why I said, folks, the smallest thing you do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be rewarded beyond your wildest imagination. You shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. 
You knew, did you, that I was a severe man? Of course, this guy's got Jesus all wrong. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put the money in a bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he already has 10, 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Do you think this judgment matters to God? Yes, it does. God stands ready to richly reward you and me for our faithful service for him in this lifetime. And guys, it is going to be beyond your wildest imagination. Again, even a cup of water offered in the name of Christ will be rewarded beyond your wildest imagination in the life to come. Since this coming accountability for believers is a recurring theme in the Bible, what should we do? Here's what we should do. We should do exactly what Peter tells us to do. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with what? Fear throughout your time as exiles. That is right in line with what we see the Apostle Paul saying. Many of you are familiar with this verse, Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. We hear this verse quoted all the time, but what in the world does that mean? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What it means is this. Now that you are saved, take seriously and reverently your high calling to be a holy people in this generation and live your life seeking to please the Lord and not men. Fear God, revere him, serve him, and no one else. Amen? Amen. It's crazy how much time we spend in this life trying to please those whose opinions don't even matter. And so little time trying to please God, whose is the only opinion that matters. And because of that, what do we do? We spend our time fearing men. I wonder what they think about me. I wonder what the people online think about me. Who cares? Who cares? Paul says, I don't care if any of you judges me. I don't even judge myself. I don't even care what I think about me. With regard to working out our salvation with fear and trembling, Dr. John MacArthur says this. It is the solemn, reverential fear that springs from a deep adoration and love. It acknowledges that every sin is an offense against a holy God and produces a sincere desire Not to offend and to grieve him, but to obey, honor, please, and glorify him, not just in some things, but in all things. Now, what I'm about to say is incredibly important, so do not miss this. God is just as serious about your salvation as he is your sanctification. And by sanctification, that's just a a theological term that means your holiness, that you are a holy people, that we are a holy people. Let me ask you a question. How serious is God about your salvation? Well, the answer is simple. Enough to send his one and only begotten son into the world to die for the sins of men. That's how serious God is about saving you. 
He spared no expense. He sent his son to die for you. This is the good news. This is the gospel. The righteous one came into the world to die for the unrighteous. Now let me ask you a second question. How serious is God about your sanctification? Folks, the answer is exactly the same as the first question I asked. Enough to send his one and only sinless son into the world to die on a cross, taking the punishment that you and I deserved. Folks, Jesus didn't just die so that he could save you and me. He also died so that he could sanctify you and me. That's what he did. To make us a holy people, wholly devoted to him in this lifetime. We are exiles passing through. We are pilgrims passing through. This world is not our home, but we are not just any exiles. We are reverent exiles, knowing that we have been called to be holy in this generation, no matter the cost to us, that we would be willing to lay down our lives in service for our king, because he's that great. He's that majestic. And we know that at the end of our lives, no one is going to call us to an account except him. It doesn't matter what the world thinks about us, because the world doesn't have the final say. God does. Amen? Amen. And that's why I want to encourage you guys. I, I want to encourage you. Even the smallest thing that you do for the Lord in this lifetime will be rewarded beyond your wildest imagination in the life to come. I had a lady come up to me after the first service and she, she goes, what, what does it mean to serve the Lord? She goes, does it, do I have to go do something? And I said, I said, you're at church today, correct? And she goes, I am, here I am. And I said, Hebrews 10.24 says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. I said, you're here today and you know who that encouraged? She goes, who? And I said, me. <laughs> I said, thank you for being here. You're, when, you get, when you obey God's word, no matter if it's gathering together or giving a cup of water in his name, that is you serving your king, living as a reverent exile in this lifetime, and it is going to be rewarded beyond your wildest imagination. Let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you, what is God's will for your life? What would you say? Here's a better question. What does the Bible say? Here's what the Bible says. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that each of you that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. He's going to hold people accountable, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Remember, God is on his throne. All men are going to be called before the judgment seat of Christ, for God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. Paul wrote this to Timothy. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Listen, folks, I'm not putting roots down in this world. I'm an exile passing through, but I'm not just any exile. I'm a reverent exile. I want to be set aside in, for honorable uses in this lifetime so that God can use me before he calls me home. Amen? I'm assuming you want the same too. I want to get to heaven and go, I'm exhausted, God. And he goes, enter into your rest. I want to need that rest. I want to give my life away. I want to be so exhausted when this life is over because I was living as an exile, a reverent exile, serving God in holiness, that when I get to heaven and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter your rest, I want to fall into his arms exhausted. And I know you do too. 
that we are to live as reverent exiles is all throughout the Bible. Listen to this verse. Psalm 211. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Look at the pairing of these words. Serve with fear, rejoice with trembling. Listen, in both instances, we have words paired together that don't seemingly belong together. Listen, we have all heard sermons on the importance of serving the Lord, right? You probably have heard 10,000 of those sermons. You've heard a bunch of them from me. Serve the Lord. Use your gifts while you can on this planet. You know, your, your feet were set in this generation for a purpose. Get busy. Go do your business that God has set you here for. But let me ask you this. You've heard 10,000 sermons on serving the Lord, but when was the last time you heard a sermon about serving the Lord with fear? <laughs> probably never. And I've never preached one. Until now, I suppose, we serve the Lord with fear because we know that he's going to call us an account, to account. And when he says, Bill, what have you done? I want, to be the, I want to be the guy that says, Lord, you gave me 10 gifts. Here's 10 more. I want to double. I want to be the first guy with the 10 minus who got 10 more and then gets one more on top of that. Sorry if I'm selfish, but that's what I want. Same goes for rejoicing. We've all heard a million sermons on the importance of rejoicing, but when was the last time you heard a sermon exhorting God's children to rejoice with trembling? Come before the Lord your God, bow before him, rejoice and tremble before him because he is the Lord God Almighty who reigns and his opinion is the only opinion that matters. Do not worry about this world, the rulers of this world, the people of this world, what people think about you. Who cares? None of them are going to hold you accountable. Only one will hold you accountable and that is God Almighty. Serve him, revere him, worship him and adore him. That's the whole point of this sermon. We're not just called to live as exiles. We're reverent exiles. We fear him. We are pe people who serve God with fear, who rejoice with trembling. David summed it up well. This is Psalm 2, just three psalms later in uh, Psalm chapter 5, verse 7. He says this, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. And oh, by the way, when I enter the house to worship the Lord, what is my attitude? I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. By the way, if you want to know what it looks like to be reverent, what does a reverent exile look like? Look no farther than the spiritual realm. It should not surprise us that the angelic beings that God has created revere him. You want to know how much they revere him? This much. Isaiah chapter 6. And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. These are the angels that were created specifically to minister in the presence of God. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house, that is the temple, was filled with smoke. Fascinating. R.C. Sproul says this, these angels that fly before God, they cover their face. Why? It's as if the glory of God was too much for them. The very angels that are created to fly in the presence of God can barely stand to be there. They've got to cover their faces with two of their wings. Why do they have six wings? Because two, they've got to cover their face. 
And with two, they cover their feet. Their feet is a sign of their creatureliness. It's as if, God, I can't stare at your glory, and, and you're so majestic and eternal and, and amazing. My, i got to cover my creatureliness from you. And with two, they fly. And what do they see? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when they say that, the thresholds shook. Inanimate objects shook at the glory of God. Folks, this is the God you serve. This is the God that we follow. This is the God that needs to be proclaimed in America today. You fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You start here and stay here until that is crystal clear, not only in your life, but in the lives of those that you have influence over. If you're going, how do I influence people? You want to change somebody's mind, don't, whatever it is you want to change their mind on, if you want to change their mind, go back to the root. The root is this, they probably don't fear God. So go back to the root. If you have children and grandchildren and you don't like where they're headed, you're trying to address the issues out here, you're just addressing the problems. Go back to the root. They don't fear the God that created them. They don't fear him. This in Isaiah chapter 6, we see a very similar situation in the book of Revelation. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, there those six wings are again, and full of eyes all around and within. They're getting a fuller description. And day and night, they never see saying, listen to this, day and night, they never, this is, they were created for this sole purpose. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Incredible. Perhaps even more telling than the angelic beings that were created to fly before the throne of grace, before the throne of God and can barely do that, is this fact. Even the demons believe in God and shudder. Remember, if you want to know what reverence looks like, look to the spiritual realm. The unseen world shudders at the presence of God. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe that and shudder. Listen, I meet people all the time in this country and other, from other parts of the country. You ask them, do you believe in God? They go, of course I do. I believe in God. Just one problem. They don't fear him. I go, you believe in God, you do well. But know this, even the demons believe and they have the wherewithal to shudder at the presence of God. I'm not sure you do. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We start here and stay here until this is crystal clear. If you want to influence somebody or change someone, go back to the root. We must revere and fear the one true God and him alone. It's fascinating to me that the demons shudder at the presence of God. And it might be in an indictment on modern day evangelicalism, American evangelicalism, that there is perhaps greater reverence among the ranks of the redeemed than the ranks of many, pardon me, the ranks of demon, demons than the ranks of the redeemed. <laughs> I butchered that, so let me say that again. It might be an indictment on modern day evangelicalism that there is perhaps greater reverence among the ranks of demons than the ranks of the redeemed. 
Why is the current state of the church is as it is? Why is the church, entire denominations are being shipwrecked. Entire churches are falling by the wayside into utter apostasy. Why is that? I can tell you why. They have lost their fear of the Lord. They have no reverence for the king who sits on the throne. If they could get even a sense of his glory and majesty, they would be like the angels covering their faces and covering their, themselves. As a matter of fact, whenever the apostles, the apostle John, who was perhaps the closest disciple of Jesus, in the book of Revelation, that same John sees Jesus seated on the throne, and what does it say? I fell on my feet as though dead. <laughs> I fell, the apostle John, who knew Jesus better than anyone, when he sees him in glory, he says, I fell at his feet as though dead. Why does all this matter? Here's why this matters. When the unbelieving world, listen, we are living in a world that is out of control and is, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They are lost, they're confused. Our children are being taken advantage of and I can go on and on in that. But here's the deal. When the unbelieving world looks at those of us who are believers, they should see a people that are truly different. They should see a people, first and foremost, whose home is not this world, right? Why is the world so uptight about everything right now? Because for much of the world, this world is their home, but not you and me. We care about what happens here and now. But we know that what happens here and now is temporal. There's something better coming. Amen? So when they look at us, they should go, you're living different. And you should go, that's because I'm a pilgrim passing through. I'm just an exile. So when they look at us, they should see something different in us. For example, they should see these things. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They should see these fruits in us. They should look at us and go, there's something different about you. You're, an, you're living like an exile, a pilgrim passing through, and you're full of love and joy and peace. and faith. They should see that. They should also see a people that are obedient. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. We're a people that obey God no matter the cost to us. But you know what else they should see? They should see this, reverence. They should see reverent exiles. And that's important for a lot of different reasons. But one reason in particular is this. For many believers and churches, we have been told the priority is, being, is to be relatable and not reverent. In other words, we have been told that we should get the people of this world to see us who are believers and our churches as relatable, cool, even fun and funny because we assume and are told that if we do that, if we're fun and funny and relatable, this will draw them to us. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There is nothing wrong whatsoever with removing any unnecessary barriers from people seeing the gospel in us or hearing the gospel from us. But folks, when we sacrifice being reverent, in order to be relatable, we are not helping the cause of Christ. We are hurting it. I'm going to say something, and you might disagree with it. I think the people of this world are starving for something more at this point. <laughs> the world is offering nothing but confusion and disorder. And I know that there are people out there like sheep without a shepherd who are looking for something more. And I think when they see Christians who are not just living as exiles, but they see us revering and fearing and worshiping the one true king, they're going to thirst. I really do believe that. I believe there's so many people out there that are thirsting. Give me something more. Please, somebody show me something more. 
And at that point, they don't need me to be relatable or funny. They need me to be reverent. I think people are attracted. And in this day and age, people will be attracted to the reverence they see in us. Let me ask you a question. When you read this verse right here, what comes to mind? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. When I read that verse, you know what comes to my mind? Let, let people see your love and your gentleness, Bill, and your kindness. And rightly so. That all applies there. But you know one word that I never apply to this verse, but I'm going to start? is reverence. Let your reverence shine to others. Let others see who you revere and fear and serve with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't be ashamed of that. And by the way, you do it all the time. You want to know a very practical way that Christians do this all the time? Every time I go out to a restaurant and I'm sitting there and I look over and it happens on occasion, I'll look over and I'll see a couple or a family bow their head to pray. And my heart's so blessed. And I'll usually go over and I'll just say, hey, I want to thank you for doing that. I give them a thumbs up or I'm like, thank you for doing that. Because in that moment, they were bowing their heads and showing who they were thanking that food for. They revere God. And every time you're out at a restaurant or even at home with your family over the holidays and you say, you know what, family? Maybe your family doesn't believe in the Lord. You say, I want to pray for this food. In that moment, you're showing who it is you revere, who it is that you fear. After the first service, uh, Ruth came up to me, or I caught her out on the plaza, and she was telling me she was at a restaurant, and um, a couple had prayed, and she was just so blessed by it. She just went over, and she said, thank you so much for doing that, and they came over and had this nice conversation, and when Ruth and her husband were about to pay the bill, they said, hey, can we get our bill, and the couple had already left. They said, well, it's already taken care of. Isn't that great? That's amazing. I think the people of this world are starving for something more. I think the people in our families are, that aren't believers are, are looking for something more. And you know what they need to see? They need to see a people who's, who know that this world's not our home. And that we have set on high in our hearts the Lord God Almighty. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. He is set apart in my heart, in my life. I revere and fear him. I serve him with all of my heart. I do not give glory to men. I don't, I, don't have, I don't worship celebrity pastors. I don't worship celebrity politicians. I worship the Lord God Almighty. Amen? Amen. We serve him and him alone. You can clap at that. Dr. R.C. Sproul says this, and I finish with this. Authentic wisdom begins when we understand that God is to be the object of our devotion, our adoration, and our reverence. Folks, let's show ourselves to be wise exiles by living as reverent exiles. This is what the world needs to see in us. With the few days that we have on this planet, the few days that we have left, you serve the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You don't give one thought to what anyone else thinks about you. You don't even judge yourself. You leave that in the hands of God. You serve him with all of your heart, all of the days of your life. Amen? I finish with this question. Am I living reverently as if this world is not my home? 